Rhode Island officials are developing a way to streamline identity management for businesses and individuals. It promises to make life easier for government and its constituents. Here with the details, Rhode Island's Secretary of Commerce, Elizabeth Tanner. Ms. Tanner, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. And we don't get too many non-federal officials on the show, so it's good to hear from someone at the state level. Let's begin with the problem that Rhode Island is trying to solve here. We're trying to make it easier to do business, something I'm incredibly passionate about. We did our research to discover that just about every state has a business register the same way through multiple websites, same information on different forms, and we're trying to make it easier. So we want to create a single website for you to enter to provide your information with your digital identity, ideally, so that you don't have to keep saying all that information over and over again. And does this replace or does it build on or do you even have any experience in the state with, say, the DUN numbers that could be a unique identifier for a business? What's interesting about the DUN number is that most businesses before the pandemic didn't have them. Uh, it seems like a lot of them have received them since then. But pre-pandemic, it wasn't a common number that most businesses needed. And this is aimed at all businesses of all sizes. So your bigger businesses might have a DUNS, but you know some of your restaurants and hair salons, they do not. So you're not talking about simply businesses that want to do business with the state of Rhode Island as contractors, but simply to do business in Rhode Island and get through the regulatory hurdles they need to get through. Initially, we'll be focusing on registering LLCs and corporations. That's our main project. But we're also looking at offering credentials for certain professions. Okay. And how do they do it now? I mean, it's just a matter of if you're a hair salon, that's one agency. And if you're, I don't know, a bowling alley, that's another agency. Well, what's interesting is when you register your business, pretty much everybody has to to file the same paperwork, whether it's at the Secretary of State's office, the Department of Labor and Training, as well as the Division of Taxation. That's what every business has to do. But if you're a hair salon or a restaurant or a plumber, you need different kinds of licenses and different kinds of permissions to be able to operate. We're starting initially with that base where everybody fills out the paperwork for the LLC incorporation, and then we hope to build upon it to focus on additional uh, additional professions, and we'll be starting with restaurants. Got it. So one portal, everybody does the same thing, and it would end confusion then, sounds like. Well, example is that, and, and we're still waiting for the budgetary approval for the restaurant space, but you need to use about 11 different websites to open up your restaurant, and ultimately we'd have that down to one. There might be some federal or municipal interaction, so that might add more, but at least all of the state websites would enter through one singular place. Got it. Yes, I remember the case of New York City trying to get regulatory approval for a super-duper European-made comfort station, let's call it, to put on the sidewalk. And there were so many regulations and so many agencies that they determined it was impossible to get it improved, even though the experiment, everyone loved it, this device, this kind of a kiosk type of thing. So I, I understand the problem. And what are the technologies that you're bringing to this project? So it's interesting. We've been very much focused on the simplification of the process. Uh, we are looking at potentially using some blockchain technology. I know that the word blockchain makes people nervous, you know, it makes, but what's important to understand is that blockchain might be related to crypto, but this has absolutely nothing to do with crypto. This is very much focused on distributed ledger technology. I like to call it a souped up Excel spreadsheet. And that's what we're hoping to be able to utilize rather than traditional means of holding information. Now, when you mentioned that restaurants each have to go to 11 different websites, that means 11 different entities. 
And so somehow there has to be an integration of what's happening at those entities then, right, for someone to be able to go to one website and get through what used to be 11. Actually, what we're looking at would not be an integration of all of them, but instead the ability to answer the questions specific to those agencies. So they would still retain their own softwares and they would just be connecting to a central, what I call data lake, to provide that information back to each agency. Okay. We're speaking with Liz Tanner. She's Secretary of Commerce for the state of Rhode Island. And is this something that you are doing with state staff developers, or do you have a contractor in there? What's your approach from a business standpoint of building this application? So, of course, we have state staffers, but we do have an RFP out right now to require uh, input from particular body, a software company is what we're really looking for. Ideally, someone who's had experience in doing this kind of work. Not much has been done like this in the United States. We have seen it internationally. And so we hope to copy some of those models. And in a small state like Rhode Island, it's a great place to test that out. Well, it's small, but it's kind of populous though, right? We have a little over a million people. So some people like to call us a small city, but it's an absolutely beautiful state that our size is to our advantage. It allows us to be able to do things that bigger states cannot. Yeah. All right. For some reason, I had Rhode Island pictured much more population just because it's tucked between New York and Connecticut and Massachusetts, which are bigger states. But yeah, a million, you're sort of on the New Hampshire size then roughly. We are small but mighty. All right. And what's your timeline? When would you like to deploy this? And what will be the deployment strategy? Like start with hamburger joints, and if it works for them, move on to Italian restaurants and lobster shacks? Uh, We do have some of the best restaurants in America. so uh, And I've eaten in some of them, and I can attest to that. (laughs) That is true. Uh, But initially, we're focusing on the business registration process, you know, the one that everybody has to follow. We hope to receive budgetary funds to do all restaurants. And then it's sort of a matter of saying, what's next? Uh, I think we want to grow our credentials. Right now, uh, we're focused on CPAs. I think we'll be looking at architects and engineers next. And then it's a matter of just making it bigger, stronger, and better, and adding more state agencies on. We're trying to focus on where businesses most often interact with state government. Right. So just again, to reiterate the goal, it would be for a given business could go to a single website to to do all of the registration with the state required instead of multiple websites, as is the case now? That's correct. That's what we're shooting for. What prompted this in the first place? Were you hearing complaints from businesses or just maybe looking at digital services elsewhere and what's possible? As an attorney myself, I've opened up 350 plus LLCs and corporations, and I saw how difficult it could be for them to understand what they needed to do. I was blessed to also have the leadership of both Governor McKee and current Governor McKee and former Governor Raimondo, now Commerce Secretary Raimondo, who understood and saw the potential for this. And so with their support, we've been able to secure funds to take this program to the next phase. All right. So the budget year for Rhode Island then under which you would get funds, would that be July 1st? Is that your fiscal year? That's correct. So we do have funds to do the business registration. It's that opening a restaurant that would be in our next budget cycle. Got it. All right. So can we check back with you in the next budget cycle and see how the restaurants did? And hopefully by then we'll have a a much better understanding of how we've been able to technologically set up the business registration process. And let me ask you this. Often new systems are deployed and simultaneously the agency turns off the old one. People flip off the new one, I guess you might say. And if something goes wrong, what is the recourse if the new system is a disaster? I only ask that because I've seen it happen. We are intentionally making sure that this is boring and not risky. 
We are uh, focused on what the possibilities are, but if for some reason it wasn't going to work, you can still go through the regular websites. You could still go back to paper if we had to. Uh, This is just an alternative way to make it easier to do business. And by the way, is there any communication you're having with anyone at the federal level, or do you think this could be something you could show the feds and say, hey, look what we did for a certain class of constituent? Maybe you could. I have been blessed to be in contact with many of the other governments that are using this technology and trying to make it easier to do business in their own spaces. And one of them is the federal government in certain places. So there's a lot of great things happening in the federal government that are very similar to what we're trying to do. Liz Tanner is Secretary of Commerce for Rhode Island. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe to the podcast edition wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty. 
to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet 
Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.